0: The best. 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 best, 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 best of Cresta in the Afternoon Countdown. Number 15. Good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. You know, we've all heard, I think most of us have heard, anyways, of Pandora's Box or uh, Jason and the Argonauts and the quest for the Golden Fleece. The stories of uh, Odysseus, uh, the story. The Tale of Prometheus, uh, Cupid, Apollo, Hercules. What do these Greek and Roman characters and myths possibly have to do with the Christian faith? Well, my guest, Dr. Louis Marcos, has done a great job uh, helping us understand the significance uh, that these myths uh, pose for us. Uh, Louis has been with us many times before over the years. He's the author of many books. Uh, in the fields of literature and and Christian apologetics. He did uh, Atheism on Trial, Refuting the Modern Arguments Against God. He did an outstanding series for the Great Courses uh, Company, dealing with the the life and thought of C.S. Lewis. And today we're going to look at uh, his book, The Myth-Made Fact, Reading Greek and Roman Mythology Through Christian Eyes. He is... uh, Professor of English and scholar and resident at Houston Baptist University and has uh, delivered hundreds of lectures worldwide in the area of apologetics, uh, Dante, C.S. Lewis. Lou, great to have you back here. Thanks. Thanks, Al. It's always great to be on. Let's uh, let's talk a little bit about some basic questions here. Um, I think what happens when modern people think of the Greek and Roman myths, they can read the stories... uh, as pieces of story, as, as stories, uh, as literature, as storytelling, and they can draw lessons from them. But in the back of our minds, it's always, I think, we're always wondering, what did the Greeks and Romans actually think about these gods and goddesses? Were they were they factual beings? Uh, did they actually roam the cosmos? Uh, or were they, you know metaphors for other aspects of life. I
1: tell you, it's one of those things where, you know, we find it so hard. Did did they really believe that back then? Yeah. But in many ways, in Hinduism, in India today, it's not that different, oddly enough. Yeah. Right now. Yeah. And, 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 you know, as in in all times of history, there's always the belief of the people in the countryside, right? And, in fact, the word pagan Literally means right. hillbilly. Yeah, right. If you think of <laughs> Areopagus, true. the yeah. hill of Ares, or the hill of Mars, a pagan is literally a hillbilly, right? Yeah. So they're the regular people that you know are so tied to the to the village, right? And and you know, I, I mean, you you can see this even Christians. A lot of <clears throat> say Orthodox or Catholic Christians that live you know maybe in the countryside of Greece or Sicily or something like that a lot of times there's really a focus on the local saint, yeah, right? That's right. The, the, the local person around there, right? And then, then, of course, you go to the very top, and you've got the maybe overly sophisticated people who just, well, it's just the idea that's important. So in an odd way, I think we have a similar dynamic that's going on there. And yet, and one of the many reasons I needed to write this book is because, in many ways, some of those pagans <laughs> may be closer to a true understanding of religion than a lot of sort of modern super-liberal people. In other <laughs> words, at least the pagans looked at the world, and they saw it was alive with God's presence. Yeah. Now again, they they, they 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 did not have access to the special revelation of the Bible to really understand this, but they understood that God was also an imminent God, a God that was within, that was here, that there was something about understanding the cycles of nature about life and death and rebirth that can point us towards the truth. Yeah, yeah. Now, they saw very dimly in a dirty mirror, but they saw something. They, they lived in, an, as people would say today, in an enchanted universe. Mm-hmm. They weren't caught in a secular age like Charles Taylor has helped us to understand. But we're sort of closed off from the world around us, mm-hmm. and, and we're in a, in, a, in a buffered world, as Charles Taylor calls it, that that you know, that nothing from the outside can affect us. But in, in a weird way, some of these pagans were a little bit wiser than we are yeah. to understand that you know God created us, God created the world, and there's there's a connection there that we need to understand. And you know, it it all goes back to this idea that you know, of course, Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. He completely fulfills the Old Testament law and prophets. Mm-hmm. But imagine Al, if Jesus came into the world and he fulfilled everything in the Old Testament, as we believe. But imagine if what he did had no meaning whatsoever to the 99% Gentiles that lived in the world. It would seem like a foreign god had invaded.
2: Right. But right. Jesus
1: was no foreign god. He was the Savior of the world, the right. Savior of Jews and Gentiles alike. And so, you know, the, 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 I really think one of the reasons so many of the pagans were readily converted is they recognized in Jesus that sort of myth of the dying and rising God that they talked about, you know, in a very crazy, barbaric way in their myths, and I think they recognized that here was the myth that came true. It wasn't just a story; right. it happened once.
0: Yeah. Yeah. This is uh, this C.S. Lewis has this essay. I think it is called "The Myth uh, Made Fact" or something of that sort. Uh, Lewis is probably one of the great, and you're a great Lewis scholar. Lewis is the one that I think opened up uh, our eyes on this uh, because of his own deep appreciation for myth. Uh, tell us a little bit about his what role it played in his own conversion, because I, I think you pointed out that he didn't just jump from atheism. He was a confirmed atheist for a number of years, and he didn't just, he didn't just jump from atheism uh, into uh, you know Orthodox Christianity.
1: It's true. You know, his is not the story of, say, Chuck Colson or... or... Josh McDowell or or uh you know, one of these people that went directly from athe or Lee strobel directly from atheism to Christianity. Right. He was a theist for almost two years before he became a Christian. So in other words, he came to believe in one God, you know, holy, absolute, but he couldn't bend his mind around this idea that Jesus was the Son of God. Yeah. And one of the things that was holding him back Al, was that Lewis loved mythology. He was an English professor like I am. He studied Greco-Roman, Norse, Egyptian, all the mythology, and he knew from his reading, particularly a book called The Golden Bough mm-hmm. by Sir James Fraser, he knew that all the great myths of the world had stories of dying and rising gods. Now, they, they were stories, they were kind of barbaric, they were bloody, right? But this, this, this persisting archetype uh, and, and, you know, some of, some of the people that fit this archetype are Osiris in Egypt mm-hmm. or Adonis in Greek mythology or Tammuz in Babylon. In fact, Tammuz is mentioned in Ezekiel, you know, as one of these pagan gods. Mm-hmm. Uh, it could be Mithras amongst the, uh, amongst the Persians or, or Balder amongst the Norsemen. But these stories have this sort of son of the god, this demigod that comes to earth and, and often dies of violent death. But then returns seasonally, so it's it's a seasonal myth of life, death, and rebirth, and it comes to be called the Corn King because it mimics the life cycle of the corn, which is actually the way British people say wheat because <laughs> they didn't have corn in the in the old in the old world right until okay. Columbus. So, we would say Wheat King, right? For Corn King is what it is. But basically, Lewis said, okay. So uh, what, what's the deal about this rabbi that died 2,000 years ago? I mean, maybe this is just the, the Hebrew corn king myth. I mean, why should that change my life? And then, one night, uh, when Lewis was 32 years old, he was taking a long walk around Addison's Walk that's in Magdalen College, Oxford, yep. with his good friend J.R.R. Tolkien, strong Catholic man. And Tolkien suggested to Lewis, well, maybe the reason that Jesus sounds so much like a myth is that he's the myth-made fact. Mm-hmm. He's the myth that came true, so that this desire, this need, if you will, for this dying and rising God, that was written into our DNA by the Creator who created all people, Jew and Gentile alike, and that desire finds its way into all of these different myths, fragmented in a thousand ways, but doesn't it make sense that when that Creator God comes into the world to enact salvation, doesn't it make sense He'll do it in a way That fulfills that desire the same way Jesus fulfilled the specific Old Testament law and prophets. So Jesus is literally the myth made fact. It is that story, but now that story has come into real time and space. He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate at a specific time in the history of the world. And now everything's different. And now again, he not only fulfills the law and prophets. He fulfills the highest yearnings of the pagans. And I think all of that just kinda rustles the leaves are rustling with it, C. S. Lewis says, all around us. And the stories are there. Yeah. And if we if we study them, they will just Open up for us. So just because the, the pointers are going to be there.
0: So so just then, as the Hebrews uh, had prophets um, who helped prepare them for the coming of Messiah, uh, one can look upon the Gentile world that was being prepared by these various myths. Is that the way to look at it?
1: Yes, and 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 and, and we even have words for this in theology. We speak of the difference between special revelation. Mm-hmm. that's the way God speaks directly through the Prophet, the Old, the New Testament Christ mm-hmm. and general revelation, yep. which is the way He speaks through creation, mm-hmm. through conscience, through reason, through through imagination. These, these are the other ways that God speaks to us. Yep. the heavens, you know the heavens are telling the glory of the Lord right Well, right. the heavens don't tell the glory of the Lord the same way, that Psalm 19 itself does, right, with specific words. Right. But it still speaks of God's presence and holiness. You remember Romans 1, uh, Al? Yeah. Why, why 1, are the without excuse? Yeah. yeah, they're without excuse, because God's glory and holiness are written in creation. But we, we blind ourselves to it. So, you know, it, 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 it's just, look, if if if, if that general revelation speaks to our guilt right can it also speak to the glorious celebration the groping outward for this truth
0: right right
1: that was all brought to fruition did the church, when how, Jesus of Nazareth this historical person died and rose
0: how did the church fathers regard these did they generally recognize the myth, myths as a uh, preparation for the gospel? Or did they treat the myths as pagan contamination?
1: You, you, you can get both versions of okay. this. I mean, you, you are, are always going to get sort of suspicious people, right? Right. Now, the first thing, though, almost immediately, if you read the earliest, uh, what we call the earliest apologists, like Justin Martyr, mm-hmm. these people are immediately speaking of Jesus as the Logos.
2: Yeah, because yeah.
1: they know that this is a, a Greek word. It goes back to Plato. Right. It was used by Plato, words like that and Theos. And so they were making that connection right away. <laughs> and here's a neat thing I discovered. I was working on a book and, and reading some of these early apologists. It amazes me how many of them point to Socrates... ...as almost a kind of Christian martyr. Interesting. They're not literally believing that Socrates knows
0: Christ. Right, But they believe he's a martyr for the truth. He's a a type, yes. Well, hold it there, Luke. I've got to take a break. And I want to come back and pick up on this again. Uh, We'll start with Socrates, in fact. My guest, Dr. Louis Marcos, myth-made fact. The best... 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 Best. 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 Of Crest in the Afternoon Countdown. Number Number 15... Good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. With me, Dr. Louis Marcos, uh, author of The Myth Made Fact, reading Greek and Roman mythology through Christian eyes. At the break, we were talking about how the, uh, just as the Hebrew prophets uh, prepared Israel for the coming of Messiah, so too the Gentile world was prepared by the telling of some of these uh, great myths that uh, we've heard of. And uh, I asked Lou, how did the Church Fathers... Uh, look at the uh, classical mythology? Did they see it as a preparation for the Gospel, or did they regard it as pagan contamination? And we were talking about uh, the one of the earliest apologists, Justin Martyr, in his uh, seize, uh, seizing the concept of the Logos, and you mentioned that there were a number of fathers who had a high regard for Socrates as a type of they, martyr for the truth.
1: They really did. I mean, they understood that Obviously, Socrates did not have special revelation, he didn't right. know, this right. is before Christ anyway, but that he was yearning and he was willing to lay his life down for the truth, mm-hmm. truth with a capital T, the Logos, right? Yeah. Uh, a, a, another good case study of this, jump ahead, the great St. Augustine. Yeah. If you read uh, Book 7 of his Confessions, as he talks about his journey towards Christianity, He doesn't go directly either. He's like C.S. Lewis. He went through many stages. That's true. And one of his stages was a a Neoplatonist stage. Mm -hmm. And he said in those pagan books, he did learn or read that the Word, that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He knew something about the Logos, but only in Scripture did he read that the Logos was made flesh and dwelt among us. (laughs) Yes, yes. But you you notice that it wasn't, you know, it wasn't black or white. It wasn't utter deception or complete truth. It was partial truth breaking through, through the pagans, that leads him forward. Let, Let me give you a better case study here. Uh, uh, Al, and mm-hmm. this is one particularly that that's good for a Catholic radio station because for a long time there were a lot of sort of low Protestants that would accuse the Catholic Church of basically uh, corrupting the faith right. by putting Christmas on December twenty fifth.
2: Yeah, that's right. Now let's yeah.
1: talk a little bit about this because this is an important case study, right? It, it does seem that it was decided for December the twenty fifth after Constantine. It does seem mm-hmm. like they decided to put it there Mm -hmm. well why did they put it there and then let's decide whether this is watered down doctrine or is this a wonderful form of cultural apologetics okay why december 25th (coughs) well it just so happens that around that date (coughs) the pagans were celebrating two different holidays that were really big one of them was called the saturnalia once a year around the winter solstice and by the way December 25th back then was December 21st. It was actually the winter solstice. And around the winter solstice, they were doing a celebration that was a sort of crazy Mardi Gras celebration that wanted to look back to a golden age when the gods were living side by side, when the god Saturn <laughs> was living there in Italy. <laughs> I've been sick for about a week. I'm coming oh. out of my sick bed here. <laughs> so, um,. So already people were celebrating like, like a, a rejuvenation. But also that day, <coughs> remember it really was the winter solstice, was the birthday of the unconquerable sun, Sol Invictus. And the, con- the, the sort of con- the, the coming together, the conjugation, if you will, of those two things were so close to the revelation of Christmas <coughs> that they thought, look, these pagans are already celebrating something that's like a shadow of the truth yep. that was revealed in Christ. Let's do this, yep. right? So again, they were not trying to water down the doctrine; they were trying to reach out and build a bridge between the pagan and the the, the Christian. Sure, and it was very, very effective, right? And now let's use a modern example of this, and this is very different. But you know, I, I've met a lot of parents, Christian parents these would most be Protestants, who I'm not going to teach my kids about Santa Claus, because if I teach them about Santa Claus, then someday they'll realize there is no Santa Claus, and then they'll say, well, there's no Jesus either, and throw out the faith. I suppose that that's theoretically possible. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know anybody that's ever happened to. Maybe it has, okay? (laughs) But no, okay. First of all, there really was a Santa Claus, and the fact that there was this amazing man named St. Nicholas, right. there's actually a real Christian behind that. But but aside from that, by teaching young kids about a kind of magic that, again, finds its actual, real, historical fulfillment in Christ, to whom the Magi brought gifts anyway, mm-hmm. um, I, I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. Right. Now, of course, if we're using Santa Claus to teach them about uh, consumerism, well, that's a problem that Christians are probably as guilty of as non-Christians sure. in, our, in our consumerist society. <laughs> right, okay? But right. th- the point is, is that that uh, too many of us, Al, are modernists without realizing it, and we have bought into this absolute black and white understanding of fact or fiction, and nothing in between, history or myth, science or religion, reason or imagination, and they can't understand anything in between. Uh, And and that's a problem, because we live in a sacramental universe, okay? We live in a place where God's presence is made known. Here, I'll throw something out that, that may interest, interest your listeners here. Okay, C.S. Lewis uh, was, you know, was a high Anglican, mm-hmm. and C.S. Lewis believed in a male priesthood. Right. And he wrote an article about it called Priestesses in the Church? question mark Right. And he argues for a male priesthood. But here's the interesting thing. He doesn't argue for it the way, a, like a Baptist would. He doesn't give a, quote, biblical argument. In other mm-hmm. words, most Protestants, if they're going to defend that, all they'll do is quote St. Paul when he talks about, you know, husband of one wife, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Now, you know, C.S. Lewis believed that, but he gives an argument that's more Catholic. He gives an argument that is sacramental, right. that when the Lord's Supper is being done, the priest is in the role of Christ, right. who is the bridegroom to us, the bride. Yeah. And in doing that, Lewis shows us that he understands that there is a deeper dimension than sort of simple, naked reason and logic. There is a sacramental uh, dimension to life. And that's why sometimes we can learn from sacraments and even myths, some things that a purely rational argument sure. simply cannot teach us, cannot reach us. Does yeah. that make sense?
0: Yeah, you know, really. I mean, it was Lewis, I believe, and you can correct me on this, who said something to the effect of, reason is the organ of truth, and imagination is the organ of meaning.
1: Exactly. That is what he said. Yeah. Yes.
0: Yeah. And, and so this is, uh, these stories, again, are stimulating to the imagination, and they bring out meaning, significance. Uh, give us give us an example, because we've been talking about this generally. You actually, your book is full of these myths, and you have notes on these myths, you have reflections, you have applications of them. Give me an example of what you actually do in the book.
1: It's, it's wonderful. And a good example that the people will recognize, and it's actually the first, the first example, is the famous story of Daedalus and Icarus, right? And Daedalus and Icarus, father and son, are trapped in the labyrinth, the very labyrinth that Daedalus built to you know, keep the fearsome Minotaur locked up of King Minos. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then Minos was evil, and he locked him up in the very labyrinth and wouldn't let him escape. And there was no way out. There was only a small window, but that window overlooked a cliff that went right down to the rocks. The only way they could possibly escape is if they flew. Well, Daedalus was the great artificer, the great inventor, and he invented two pairs of wings. And he put one pair on himself and one in his son. And he said, son, listen to me. When you fly, you must take a middle course. If you fly too low, the water will, you know, drench the feathers and drag you down. If you fly too high, the sun will melt the wax and you'll die. And at first the son listened to him. But then he starts to think he's a bird, he starts going up and down, he goes up, and finally he goes higher and higher until the sun melts the wax, the feathers fall off the wings, and he plummets to his death. Now, it's important to read this and understand that, you know, the ancient Greeks, they understood that morality is a sort of mean between the extremes. Yes, Morality is taking the middle path. So much of the Proverbs is teaching us to take the middle path. Mm -hmm. But one of the things that I'd like to learn from this myth is too often as Christians, you know, we have this idea that God gives us these rules as sort of arbitrary things, just to keep us in line and watch us squirm or something, right? When God's law is there to protect us, right? It's it's there to stop us from Mm self-destruction, from flying too close to the sun and tumbling down. So it's important... us to understand, I mean, okay, we're not under the law anymore, we're under under grace, but that doesn't mean we throw out the law, because again, the law is what keeps us safe. It is the way that it is best to live, and you would expect that the person who created us would have the rule book and know how to treat ourselves, right? So many of the stories uh, in Greek mythology, they may not specifically tell a Christian story or specifically point to Christ, but they lay down a guide for proper Christian living.
0: So this is now, about for, the virtue of temperance. Are, g- good, good. This is about the virtue of temperance. Then this particular yeah, story. Yeah.
1: And 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 we, we need that. I mean, we, you know, yeah. you know, a lot of the Bible is quote theology, but a lot of the Bible is also practical morality right. about how to live our life properly. And there's actually lots of instruction in Greek mythology, right? But there are other parts, though, that are more theological, if you will. Many people know the famous story of Pandora's box. This was, according to the Greeks, the first woman ever created. And all the gods gave her a different gift to make her perfect. And Pan means all, and Dora means gift. So Pandora means all the gifts. And then they married her to Epimetheus. Epimetheus was the brother of a more famous guy named Prometheus, And Prometheus means forethought, Epimetheus means afterthought. And maybe he was foolish enough to take (laughs) Pandora under his roof. But anyway, (laughs) Pandora was given all these gifts, but she was given a box with a seal on it. And she was told, never, ever open this box. But after being married for a while, she got too curious. She wondered, oh, maybe if I only take a peek. And she just kindly opened up the lid, and suddenly the lid flew open, and out of it flew all the evils, war and plague and rage and and disease and famine. All these things rushed out, and she immediately closed the lid. But it was too late. Her curiosity had allowed this to come out. But then, as she listened, she heard a voice from the bottom of the box saying, Pandora, Pandora, let me out. And she opened it, and out of it came hope. And all the evils are in the world, but hope is there as well. (laughs) Now, this is amazing that it's the first woman, because our scripture tells us that the first woman named Eve...
0: Genesis 3,
1: right. (laughs) ...basically sought after forbidden knowledge. And when she did it, out came all of those evils and terrors. But, amazingly, a lot of people know this, right after the fall, God gives us a prophecy right in the... It's called the the proto-evangelium, the first good news... And you know it, uh, God says to her that I will put enmity between your seed, the woman's seed, ultimately the Messiah, and the serpent seed, the devil. And he says, he will crush his, he will bite your heel, the heel of the the sun, but he will crush his head. And so at the very moment of destruction, there is a little bit of hope that will find its fulfillment. Mm -hmm. Here's the cool difference. In the Pandora story, that hope is sort of, unmoored to anything. It's just sort of hope, but it it doesn't have real substance to it. But again, that proto-evangelion, that little seed of hope that pops out after we fall again, finds its fulfillment in Christ. So those are the stories that have a little bit more of what we would call a theological link to them. Well, Lou, it's a great... If read properly, they've got meaning.
0: Yeah, it's a great piece of work, uh, and I I really urge people to get a hold of it. (laughs) Um, How can people stay in touch with the work that you're doing? Where where should they go?
1: The easiest way, just go to Amazon.com and type in my name, Louis Marcos, M A R K O S. You'll see my Amazon author page. All 22 of my books are available there. (laughs) Or go to YouTube and type in my name and Uh, go to my YouTube channel.
0: All right. Thanks, Lou.